As James said, I want to look at Psalm 110, just the first verse. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again we come to you and praise you that you've given us this privilege and this ability to meet with you in prayer. Lord, that we can not only ask for the things that we need, but also acknowledge that you are the one true God. The God who changes the heart of men. The God who brings about faithfulness and faith salvation through your son Jesus Christ and we thank you for that this morning Lord and as we look upon this particular scripture God I just ask that in the hearts and minds of your people that you would first show us what it would have been like to be an unbelieving Jew and then to remember what it was like before we were saved Lord to read the passages of Scripture and have no understanding of what they meant. But then as we continue, Lord, I praise you because you've already shown us the truth that these Scriptures are about your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that we'll see Him this morning in the text and that it will cause us also, as we read daily, to search Him out. Not that... We haven't been found by Christ already and been made regenerate, but Lord, that now that we have been found, that we would seek Him in the Scriptures, that we would see the face of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ, and the eternity to come in Him. Lord, I pray that You would be with us today and sanctify us, cleanse us of our iniquity, and make us more holy and righteous. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. little different than what I would normally preach on today and I I felt that there was a need to to sort of go back to the basics we have a lot of new people a lot of visitors a lot of children and some aren't saved and although that's true this passage isn't any less relevant to those of us who are saved and recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we have redemption only through him. So as I stand before you this morning, I I find it imperative to speak about what I speak about every week, Jesus Christ. But in saying that, I want to speak to you concerning not the Jesus that is popular in today's culture, not the Jesus that's popular in society or the the hipster Jesus that a lot of people worship. Uh, And I would say that the majority of professing Christians worship this this false Jesus but I want to present to you uh, a Jesus that I speak of who is quite contrary to many of the Jesuses that we see pronounced in the world and that many claim to know this is the biblical Christ this is the true Messiah he's the Jesus who died as the propitiation for our sin he stood in the stead of man to pay the debt that we could not pay but that we certainly owe to our sin he's the Jesus whom you're not simply cool with, but he's a Jesus that commands 
perfect righteousness. He's the Jesus who changes men from the inside out. It's not to exclude women. Certainly changes women from the inside out as well. But it's the Jesus who is in control of all of mankind. And it's important, I think, that we see this particular Jesus and how he matches every letter and every word, every text of the Bible. It's important that we follow this Jesus. He's not a Jesus of our own creation. He's not a Jesus that is newly formed in our minds. And sad to say, that's the Jesus that many people follow. A Jesus that they've created. A Jesus that fits their ideals and their rituals. But I want to present to you the Jesus that's from the Bible. The Jesus that is righteous. The Jesus that is therefore, because he's righteous, sinless. The Jesus which in every case is perfect. And he doesn't allow you to continue in sin, but he causes you to change and he causes you to live, to live not according to the flesh, but only according to his statutes and his precepts. And by his very grace and his unmeasurable mercy, he permits us to take up a cross daily, to desire to sin no more and to desire to die from the flesh. And so my aim this morning is to present this Christ to you, a true Christ, not a Christ that has been newly invented, but a timeless Christ, an eternal Christ. One who, according to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He is, in fact, the Jesus of today, the New Testament. But he also, what I aim to show you, is the Jesus of the Old Testament. The Christ who was veiled, a mystery, in the Old Testament. This very same Christ would be extremely negligent for me to leave this statement without also making clear that Jesus did not just appear here and there in the Old Testament. The church and pastors and teachers and Christians like to read a passage and spot out, oh, that's about Christ, that's about Christ. But what I want to present to you today is that every word is about Jesus Christ. This is something that, uh, in all honesty, John Cardwell taught me uh, by the power of the Spirit that I received it and it's changed my life and I, I, I want to I preach this to you this morning that maybe it will change your life and there will be people here who are Christians people here who have searched the, the scriptures diligently but never seen Christ we need to see him in every passage and so I want to present this to you this morning it's a biblical Christ and so I want to point out one thing first, that he is in every single letter, every single scripture. I've alluded to it several times now. It's the only way that we may understand the Bible, both the New Testament and the Old Testament, to see that Christ is there, that Christ is prevalent, that Christ is the central theme to every word. We have to, in order to understand the Old Testament, understand the Jesus Christ of the New Testament. This is why the Jews needed to hear the message of the gospel because they had the word of God. It was right in front of them, but they couldn't understand it because it's spiritually discerned. But then as Christ preaches, we notice that what does he do? He preaches the Old Testament. He reveals himself hidden in the Old Testament. So people may say, Brother Tim, I don't understand the Old Testament all the time. And the good news is that I don't either. But it's still true. It's still about Jesus Christ. And the fact remains that since it's about Him, 
He is faithful to reveal himself through Scripture. And this morning I want to show you, to the best of my capabilities, how to find Christ in the Scripture. People say, how is Christ relevant to the Old Testament? How is he relevant in the New Testament and to the Old Testament? My response is always this, that we typically miss Christ because we're not looking for him. We're not looking for him in the Scriptures. Two reasons. We're not looking for him, and that's not uh, saying that we're not a people who are desiring Christ, but it's to say that we're not constantly questioning ourselves, saying, what is this Scripture about? How does it apply where is Christ in this? How does this represent Christ? How does it represent man in relation to Christ? And the second point is that we miss the Christ of the Old Testament simply because we aren't familiar with the Christ of the New Testament. How can you understand the Christ of the Old Testament if you don't understand the Christ of the New Testament? That's the idea. Even uh, relevant in the time of Jesus' ministry, they didn't understand the Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament because they had yet to meet the Christ of the New Testament. Christ in the flesh, Christ incarnate. And as he comes, we see time and time again, the disciples go to one another, come meet this Jesus, the one whom you've heard about. They've heard about him, but they didn't know him. And so I say that we miss the Christ of the Old Testament because we're not familiar with the Christ of the New Testament. So there are a total of, of three perspectives that we, that we get that, that lead us to knowledge of Christ. Insights into the knowledge of who He is and what He's done in the New Testament. It occurs in these three particular ways. And if you want to take notes, you might write these down. This is how Jesus, uh, that we come to know, the true biblical Jesus, this is how He is revealed in the Scripture. The first perspective is that of the disciples given forth in the gospel. So we considered the synoptic gospels in John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels, the first perspective. This is the perspective that the disciples give from their particular accounts. These are exclusive accounts of the historical Jesus. That's point number one. We see historically the person of Jesus Christ. The emphasis here uh, amongst these gospels is that we come to know Jesus in bodily form. The Jesus who walked the earth sinless and blameless. The Son of God being born of the Virgin Mary. It presents his, his entire life historically from his virgin birth until the time of his ascension. Let us not also, uh, in saying that, that it does present a historical Jesus in his, his, his life as man. It doesn't separate Jesus from his attributes uh, being God himself. So it's not to separate Jesus from his deity. Certainly that also is present in the Synoptic Gospels. And uh, as well with John. He's truly God and truly man. Therefore it goes without saying that the Gospels reveal both the humanity of Jesus and the eternal existence of Jesus as deity. But to the greatest degree, as we look at the humanity of Jesus from a historical context, it unearths... Uh, who he is as a person, who he is as a man, why he can be the spotless, sinless lamb of God, why he can be a sufficient sacrifice. So when we look at that, the historical uh, portions that represent Christ incarnate, we see the overarching theme here is the earthly ministry of Jesus. So number one, we come to know Jesus historically. Next, we move on 
uh, from the Gospels to the Epistles, to the letters to the churches. In the letters to the churches, we begin to see the truth and the evidences of Jesus' work on the cross. We begin to realize that the spiritual applications and affirmations of there of His being God and man. So the truth is that the the uh, Jews of the time, having their Old Testament scriptures, were looking for this Messiah. They were looking for a king. Certainly, they thought it was an earthly king. They weren't thinking spiritually as he comes. They realized that historically he is a man. He is of the line of David, yet still greater. And then they move on. Uh, As we see the epistles, they come to believe in, in Christ. He changes them. He ascends into heaven. He's given the comforter. And now we see the spiritual reality of Christ. The affirmations. He's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Now we're seeing the fulfillment of that which was in the Old Testament. All that Christ preached surrounded the spiritual truths of his person. Therefore, in the epistles, we begin to see Jesus theologically. So we have the gospels. We see Jesus historically in the epistles and the letters to the churches. We see Jesus theologically, understanding who he is as God. Lastly, in the book of Revelation, the culmination of all these things, we begin to to see another spiritual truth, an earthly truth, that as the, the consummation begins, those of us who are on this earth, sinful man being ransomed by the blood of God, and Jesus Christ, the man, we're reconciled now to God, and the truth is that there will be this resurrection, the resurrection of the saints, the truth also of Christ's return. It's disclosed in Revelation, and so now we see Christ from a third point, a third perspective, that we see Jesus eschatologically. The understanding in the end times, how his work continues. Though it is truly redemption finished upon the cross, Christ continues to work. He works in your life. He works in my life, the life of believers. He works every day as a measure of grace, even to the unregenerate, to allow them specific uh, breath to partake of his creation. And so Jesus is still at work. And so then we come understanding all these things, historical Jesus, theological Jesus, eschatological Jesus, Now we come to Psalm 110, and I want to show you the application. This is one of the greatest psalms to begin, as I'm telling you, uh, even especially the children. When you're reading the Scriptures, it's not a punishment. It's not just a daily routine. It's because this is the message, the truth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only one who can save you from your sin. This goes without saying. It's even for us as adults, those of us who already profess Christ. And so I want to show you with this Really simple passage, the, the easiest one to apply this to, how we're looking for Christ because we know He exists. We know in John chapter five thirty nine He says, You search the Scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they that testify of Me. Knowing that, that the Scriptures testify of Christ, we go back and read the Old Testament and say, Where is He? Where is Christ? And we arrive at Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the, the greatest, I believe, proper place to begin this method for reading the scriptures. So let's look at the text. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh literally says to my master. 
the funniest thing is I say that this is the easiest place to find Christ. When you read it, if you are regenerate, if you are saved, you certainly see Christ in this very first verse of Psalm 110. But the ironic thing is that people everywhere, even professing Christians, deny the fact that this is speaking about Christ. Some people say it's speaking purely of David, which doesn't make sense, even if you understand the original language uh, when it's referred to in the Greek in the New Testament when we see, uh, as I'll take us there later, the same text. It uses the same word for Lord, uh, and we would recognize that as, as speaking of God and of, of Jesus Christ. But here uh, in the psalm, people deny that it speaks of Christ. But literally it says, Yahweh, God, says to my master. Now think about this. It says there in most of your Bibles that this is a psalm of David. So we believe that this will be written, uh, penned of, of David, of course, under inspiration of God. But he's, it's denoting that David here speaks from the perspective of one who is an earthly king. So think about that. David is saying, the Lord says to my Lord. God says to my master. David, the king, is admitting that he has a master. It's kind of odd, right? Especially if it's not speaking about Jesus Christ. But he said that God is speaking to my Lord, my master. So can't you see how if you were a Jew that this may would have been a, a difficult statement at the time. You think, well, who is David's master? On one hand, we think that David is a man after God's own heart, right? And he's a godly man. But then he's saying his God is speaking to his master. Very interesting. It would have been difficult, as you see, for the Jews to understand this because they had no spiritual discernment. Lest it be given of God. Actually, I would venture to say that it implies such spiritual meanings as it speaks of the Messiah. That's what it's doing. It's speaking of the Messiah. There would be no earthly way or scholarly way to understand it apart from it being of Christ. It must be of Christ. Anything else doesn't make sense. You can hear all the arguments. Go home and study it. You'd be amazed at the arguments that you hear that say this isn't speaking about Christ. But then follow them out logically to the end, to the conclusion, and they, they never work. It leaves you hanging. It leaves you wondering. It's, it, it actually contradicts other Scripture. So it will require a supernatural work of God to have ever formed a biblical understanding of, of Psalm 110. And I would submit to you, apart from Christ, no one has ever understood Psalm 110. And the truth is that we'll never understand to the most full extent how Psalm 110 is speaking of Christ. It would take something certainly supernatural. Even still today, the text is a mystery to those who are walking in darkness. Nevertheless, the text is surely pointing to Christ. It's speaking of Christ. And as we continue to examine, we confront the fact that David, an earthly, powerful king, anointed of God, we see that in Samuel. This great high man. No one is greater than David in all of the land amongst men yet he says here he has a master he has a lord he has someone ruling over him and god is speaking to this lord he has someone whom he regards as greater and the scripture makes a contrast between god the god the father and he when we read it it says the lord says to my lord we're no doubt familiar with the anointing uh, by samuel commanded of god which we ask who is greater than the Lord's anointed? We should ask ourselves that. Who is greater 
than the Lord's anointed because David is speaking to someone there. At the time, no mere man was greater. No man on earth was greater. Even still today, who can name an earthly leader, a man in position, a president, a leader of a country who's greater than David? It'd be pretty hard. There's not been a more godly man. But yet, David speaks to one who is greater. David speaks out of sweet submission to one whose reign is broader, to one whose authority is higher, to one whose glory is much greater. He's in submission to someone. Then we consider the Davidic promise. We know that the humanity of Christ will, according to 2 Samuel chapter 7, stem from the lines of David. This must be true. So he's from the line of David, whoever this text is speaking of, but somehow he's greater than David. Kind of odd. Who fits the bill? Of course, it's Jesus, the Messiah. The lineage of Mary going back, unarguably traced directly back to the lines of David. So here we have the truth that the king that is greater than David, the one whom it speaks of, is Jesus Christ. Though Christ has yet to come in bodily form. Then, if you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. I spoke about this this morning in Sunday school. About how as Christ preached, He preached the Jesus, the Messiah, whom no one knew yet, but they had heard of in the Old Testament Scriptures. And so Jesus really preached Himself from the Old Testament. Chapter 22. This is how we arrive really at our text this morning in the Psalms. Verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is He? They said to Him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call Him Lord, saying this, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? It says, No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him another question. It doesn't just stop there. Same thing happens in Mark. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared that the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at the right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how was he a son? And the great throng heard him gladly. The same thing in Luke. Who, who's the son of Christ? But he said to them, How can he say that he's Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he the Son? The truth is that these passages indicate for us that even though the Jews of the time had heard the psalm, they were familiar with Psalm 110. It wasn't just that they knew the first part, but they probably knew the entire thing. Yet they had no application. They couldn't apply it to someone. They were still looking and to this day. There exists some that are still waiting on a Messiah. And He's already come. They missed Christ. The flesh was in the way. 
The Spirit has not unveiled the truth. There's solid evidence here that many had the Scripture memorized because he quotes it. Why would you quote something unless somebody was familiar? If we have a, a, an argument or a discussion or a disagreement on uh, things that are theological or doctrinal, what do we do? We quote a text because we're familiar with the text. Jesus quoted the text, but they had no clue whom it spoke of. At very best, the passage was just confusing. So what do we do? We see Christ here in the Synoptic Gospels preaching the Old Testament, the quotes from Psalm 110, to verify that He is the Messiah, the one whom this text speaks of. By very nature, he may, this means that He's preaching Himself. Christ is preaching Himself. Using that which the Jews has heard about, but that they had yet to understand. They had no discernment. It testified of him. He says so in John chapter 5. Luke 16. We now see that it can only speak of one both human because it says he's Lord. He's over David. He had to come from the line of David. But that he must also be divine because... He is from the lineage of David, and he is greater. Who is greater than David? Has to come from the same bloodline, born of the Virgin Mary. But he must be of God. He must be very God in the flesh to be higher than the Lord's anointed. So we see that, that those two truths must exist for one to lord over David. Since at the time no greater man existed, we know that it speaks of Jesus Christ. Christ is key to the Old Testament. He's the key to the New Testament. He reveals and defines every passage. And now knowing this, we have to continue understanding everything that we read in the light of who Christ is and what He's done. Sit at my right hand, it says, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. If you'd like to, to turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11, we'll see how this applies again in the New Testament. It's revealed in Christ in the New Testament. As Christ begins to preach, the truths of the Old Testament become real. They've been stored up. And in, in, in all honesty, when I, when I read this passage, it makes me think of a, a particular testimony that Brother Charlie has, that he had been to church for so long before he was saved. And he had read the scriptures, and he was familiar with the scriptures, but that was it. He, he could even repeat them. And then he said, as he saved, all these things made sense at one time. They just came, came to him, understanding, supernatural, spiritual discernment of the scriptures and what they meant. This is what's happening. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This is that theological perspective that I told you about from the epistles. We understand Christ historically, then theologically. So we get to the epistles and we understand that Christ, as he's died and ascended, now he is that Lamb of God. He's that sacrifice that is sufficient. And he says what here? He sat down at the right hand of God. The very same thing that we see in Psalm 110. 
the very same thing. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is at the place of honor. He's at the place where he knew his former glory whilst he was on earth. He was welcomed to this position by God, the Father, still existing himself as very God. It says he'll make his enemies a footstool. He's sitting at the right hand. Why can he do that? One, because he is a man that has died in the place of man, perfect, sinless, spotless, blameless, completely righteous, completely pure, completely holy. But that's not a place for man. It's a place for God. And he can go there too because he's very truly God. And because he is, he says he'll make his enemies a footstool. This is a saying, so to speak, that the people of the time would have certainly understood. Making your enemies a footstool. It means that your enemies will be put into total subjection. Under total subjection to your authority, to your rule. Whatever you say goes, they have no uh, means by which they can revolt, by which they can overpower. And it's interesting to take this uh, particular stance and take this view uh, coming from your enemies being a footstool. Consider this. It says that there are those wicked men who exist who will trample the gospel underfoot. What does the foot represent? It represents something that in one sense is powerful. And here we see that people will trample the gospel, but then as we see in Psalm 110 and in the synoptic gospels as Jesus preaches this particular passage, that the enemies will be made a footstool, a place that will be trampled under the foot of Christ. The most powerful foot. The gospel is really exemplary of the foot of Christ. The gospel represents how Christ tramples the wicked, how they're punished. On one hand, the gospel condemns. On the other hand, the gospel brings a man to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. It changes a man. So when we recognize that, those, uh, there are those who exist that will be burdened unto death by the very feet of God. They'll be the footstools because they're naturally at war with God. They're enemies of God because they reject the gospel. They reject the message. It's not just that they reject the message. They're rejecting the man, the God who sits at the right hand. The one who sits on the throne. And then I think again back to Genesis Thinking again of, of how a footstool is represented and how the feet are something that can do some damage. And we, we see that uh, in regards to the serpent, their heads will be bruised. The wicked will be crushed under the weight and the glory and the righteousness of Christ. There'll be a footstool. And then I think of the armor of God in Ephesians. It says the feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is powerful. The message of Christ is powerful in that it defends a man who is in Christ and that it's offensive against the enemy. So therefore, we know that this must also be of true of Christ because the gospel is His. So when it speaks of feet shod with the preparation of gospel, certainly this 
Christ, whom we believe in, isn't exempt from this. It speaks of His feet as well. His feet not only are shod with the preparation of the gospel, but they represent the gospel because He is the gospel. He is the good news. The message of Christ and who He is and what He's done is sufficient measure enough to crush sin. The gospel either convicts of sin or as it remains on shod feet, it crushes the iniquitous. It's very condemning. And so I want to sort of stop there and present this to you, especially the young people. When we read the Scriptures, are we looking for Christ? And those of us who claim to already know Christ, when we read the Scriptures, are we reading because it's habit? Are we reading because we know we're supposed to? Are we really searching out Christ? Because when you read the text, you can read it, you can memorize it, you can write it down a thousand times a day, and it will do you no good. But if the Spirit causes you to see Christ in the Scriptures, He's working in your life. Not only is He willing to save, but He's able to save. It's so important that as we read that we see Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. Every time you open your Bible, if you're not looking for Christ, if you're looking for simply an answer to a prayer, if you're looking to a way out of a situation, you're looking right past Jesus Christ. If you're looking to Christ, He's able to fulfill all of those other needs. And so I present that to you this morning uh, sort of because we have a lot of new people here and because we as a seasoned congregation, I would say, uh, we need to be reminded that every time we open the Scriptures, we're looking for Christ. We're not looking for anything else. There is nothing else. He's the only treasure. He's what the book is all about. These books. And so I encourage you to pray and meditate earnestly to see Christ in the Scriptures. And uh, the Lord is faithful to do that. He's faithful to reveal Himself in the Scriptures. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we come to You Again, Lord, we thank You for all of Your many blessings. Lord, we do thank You that You didn't come just to be an earthly king, but You are the king who is over everything. Not bound by time, existing truly in eternity. God, we thank You that Your Son Jesus Christ is in control. Lord, we just ask this morning that uh, you would enable us to cast out the things of the world, to desire to be controlled by your Spirit, God, and by your Word. We ask that you would cause us to walk in righteous paths, God, that you would turn us from sin and turn us from iniquity, give us the love that truly comes from your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, cast every thought that we have upon Him that we may not boast in the flesh, but that we may boast in our mighty God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.